May we and all beings feel the care and support of the universal Sangha. May we and all beings find the fearlessness to listen to the cries of the world. May we and all beings strive to maintain the flame of practice, that light in our very darkest room. It's nice to be back in this seat. Uh, it's been a little bit. As many of you know, I moved in to Oan last month and getting settled took some time. There was also away last week visiting my mom, the first time I'd seen her in about five years. So I'm grateful uh, that I could take care of some things in addition to getting settled here. This morning, we're continuing with our series on engaged Buddhism and the engaged Buddhist precepts, the 14 precepts that you can find in our liturgy from Thich Nhat Hanh. And this morning, I'll be talking about the fourth precept. It reads, do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering, including personal contact, visits, images, and sounds. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. If you'd like to sum up this precept in something short, you can say, do not turn a deaf ear to the cries of the world. There are two ways, at least two ways, we can explore these engaged Buddhist precepts. One is seeing them as more specific versions of what we call the 10 clear mind precepts, otherwise known as the 10 grave precepts. So you might see this precept on listening to the cries of the world as a particular instance of not hoarding the teachings of sharing one's understanding of the Dharma, freely giving of self. I've heard that the Buddha said he taught just one thing, the cause and cessation of suffering. And those who are suffering certainly need to hear the teachings. You could also see this particular precept as a more specific instance of the precept that advises us to not use intoxicants, but to polish clarity. Intoxication can be a wonderful way of ignoring suffering. Whether it's literal intoxication by way of a substance, something I know all too well, or becoming intoxicated with something that we don't traditionally consider an intoxicant, 
continuing to read and ingest news media, for example. One can develop such a hatred for a particular group of people that you really see them as the other. And you can't bring yourself to admit that they too might be suffering. You see them as the enemy. Another way to explore these engaged Buddhist precepts is to make it personal by way of a story. And that's what I'll be doing this morning. Most of you know that I have a past history of substance abuse and that recovery is a part of my life these days and happily so. So what I'd like to do this morning is share that story with you. It's a story that involves me not wanting to face my own suffering and then finally coming face to face with my own suffering and the transformation that took place as a result of that. The story begins, I've decided, in the summer of 2017. I was entering what was supposed to be my second to last year of doctoral studies. It would be my last year of doctoral studies. I thought I had two years of funding left. Turns out I only had one year of funding left. So what was supposed to be a two-year timeline to wrap up a bunch of deadlines became really a six-month timeline. As those of you who have done graduate work know, there's not just getting the thesis or the dissertation done, but then there's preparing for what's next, going on the job market. And that's a whole endeavor unto its own. So all these deadlines get moved up. And I'm under a great deal of stress trying to get everything done. I'm already working entirely too much. Now I'm working more than entirely too much. And as a way to relax, to cope with the pressure, I start drinking more. Up until this point in my life, I would have considered myself a normal drinker, whatever that means. I didn't drink every day. I didn't drink to excess, I didn't drink alone. But over the course of that year, as I'm trying to get everything wrapped up, I start drinking every day. Largely by myself at the end of the day, just to unwind. I'm drinking to excess, I'm drinking often. Drinking in the mornings. Telling myself, that's okay. People go to brunch and have mimosas and Bloody Marys. What's wrong with a beer in the shower? Take the edge off, the sting of a hangover for sure. And I start to think during this year that I might have a problem. But I also tell myself it's temporary. It's just this year. It's a hard time right now. I'm going to get through it. It's going to be okay. And it seems to be okay. I finish up the PhD. I secure a job. I'm off to Purdue for a postdoc. Everything seems to be going well. I was in Santa Barbara, California at the time. And I soon found myself in Lafayette, Indiana, 
trapped in the middle of a cornfield. But actually, it was okay. It's a new university. It's a new department, new colleagues, new students, great students, the best students I've ever taught. And for that first year, things are actually all right. I'm not drinking as much. I seem to have it under control. It really was temporary. Until it wasn't. That first year ends, the summer arrives, and all of a sudden I'm kind of alone. It's a small city, big town. I can't tell the difference between the two anymore, but I don't really have a lot of friends. I'm not doing stuff on campus all day and all of my colleagues are married and have kids. It's just me and Wilbur. I get it in my head that after, after such a successful first year, especially because my appointment was only supposed to be a year, but now it's three years, I deserve a summer off. So what am I doing? I'm drinking heavily again. Those patterns that were present during that last year in Santa Barbara reemerge. That's okay, it's the summer, I deserve this, it's a reward. I'll get it together come fall. And I do, but then what happens in the spring of 2020? The coronavirus pandemic is in full swing and we're all locked at home. And I'm really locked at home in the middle of a cornfield in Indiana. And those same patterns reemerge and also all the more so because I really have nowhere to go. I can drink whatever I want. This is the way I'm coping with the loneliness I feel. I already had pretty much no life as it was. Now I really had no life. That's a bad year for me. 2020 is a bad year. So much so that by the spring term of 2021, a year into lockdowns and the ending of lockdowns and then the reemergence of lockdowns and trying to figure out how to teach in this pandemic environment, I just can't take it anymore. And so I decide to take some time off in the spring of 2021. Took about six months off. And things got a little better. I didn't feel like I had so much pressure on me. A lot of the annoyances of academic life went away. But this pattern continued of drinking heavily, drinking really heavily. My contract with Purdue comes to an end. I'm looking for a job. I know that I need to get out of Indiana. It's a bad place for me to be. It's around this time that Penn State calls. Says, hey, we have a position for you here. You can come be an assistant teaching professor. I thought, great. I mean, get out of the cornfield. New city, new state, new environment, lots of new. I'm going to get it together. It's all going to be okay. We're going to turn it around this time. Same thing I thought as I was leaving Santa Barbara. didn't happen. I showed up here with a lot of optimism 
But what I couldn't see, what I can see now is that I was barely holding it together when I showed up here. I told you all before that I had a really hard first year here. Somehow I made it through the fall term. I'm surprised that I did. I was in the hospital twice. I'm gonna get it together. We knew the first term would be tough. January of this year seems to go okay. Then February comes and I just can't hold it together anymore. And I fall apart. Up until that point, 2017 to February of this year, I knew I'd had a problem. And I'd been trying to do something about it, but doing it on my own. I bought all the recovery books, all the self-help books. I started journaling, doing a little bit of stuff online. And I just couldn't get it together. So I admitted that I needed help. And I checked myself into a treatment center for 30 days. I went to rehab. Not far away either, just 30 minutes down the road. The St. Joseph's Institute for Addiction. I would spend the end of February and most of March there. Turns out to have been the best decision I've made. One of the best decisions I've made. It was a transformative time for me. There were two experiences that I had that really stand out. And I'd like to share those two experiences with you this morning. So the first experience comes about a week and a half into my stay there. I'm having a really hard time in treatment. In part because there's all the second guessing that I make a huge mistake, should I even be here? I need to be there. It's out next to a mountain in a remote area, the nearest gas station with a phone is like eight miles away. If I wanted to run away, I'm not gonna get far. I know, because while I was there, people tried to run away <laughs> and they did not get far. But I'm also having a really hard time because of the stories that I'm hearing, there's about 50 of us at any given time in treatment. And a lot of the sessions are group sessions where we're talking about our experiences, we're sharing our stories. And I'm hearing a lot of things that just don't fit with me. I had a problem with alcohol, but I'm sitting around people that had problems with meth and cocaine and opiates and heroin. 
the most exciting my story gets is just sitting on a couch in the dark watching reruns of a TV show, drunk with my cat, hearing about stories of people waking up in bathrooms with needles hanging out of their neck, people that have been arrested multiple times, been houseless, lost their jobs, lost their families, lost custody of their kids, people that have been in and out of the prison system, got to know well someone I consider a friend named Joe, been in and out of the Pennsylvania prison system for 18 years. Spent six of those years in solitary confinement. Thinking, I don't belong here. Look at all my degrees. Look at my fancy title. I'm a professor. Look at my CV, all the impressive things that I've done. A Dharma teacher that I'm very fond of, Reb Anderson, suggests that the fundamental human delusion is that we, are, we believe that we are separate from all that is. I've said it before in previous talks, one of the ways in which we sometimes approach our experiences the way that I certainly have is we think there's this whole thing, the world. And there's this one little thing in addition to the world, and that one little thing is us. I'm somehow different from all of this. And I certainly felt that way as I was sitting in these rooms. I couldn't talk. I couldn't share. We go around the circle, it gets me, I couldn't form complete sentences. I was just shut down. Me, who would lecture to halls filled with hundreds of students, I couldn't say a word. Because I didn't want to look in here. So about a week and a half in, on a Thursday, we had a guest speaker, had a guest speaker every Thursday. Someone to come in and share their story, share their experience, strength, and hope as a source of inspiration. And the guy's got a story. Make a great movie. Lots of shiny things in it. And I'm sitting there and I'm hearing this story, but I'm not listening to it because it's got all these shiny things that my story doesn't have. Again, I'm thinking, I don't belong here. And he stops in the middle of it and he says, I know there are some of you in this room thinking you can't relate to what I'm saying because your story is not my story. You feel like you shouldn't be here. It's like he could read my mind. And he says, if you feel that way, you're wrong. And you're wrong because you're focusing on the wrong things. Our stories are different, he says. 
but the feelings are the same. Our stories are different, but the feelings are the same. You hang around us Zen people long enough, you hear these stories where someone hears something and all of a sudden they have an enlightenment experience. Someone's sweeping in the Zendo, they hear a bird chirp and awakening. Scrubbing toilets, they hear a verse of the Diamond Sutra and boom, realization. Hearing these words from that guy who came to share his story was my Diamond Sutra moment, if you will. I may not be able to say that all the things that were true of so many people that I were in treatment with were also true of me, but what I could say is I know what it's like to feel that crippling fear that you're just not gonna get it together, that this pattern of falling apart is just going to continue. I know the pain of loneliness and isolation, of not wanting to step outside your front door into the world because you just don't wanna face it that day. of just utter disappointment and shame in yourself because you woke up that morning and you said, I'm gonna get it together today. It's gonna be different today. Only to end up in the liquor store that afternoon and then drunk on your couch at the end of the day. Say, well, we tried. So I'll just give up. Maybe we'll try again tomorrow, maybe we won't. I heard those words and the transformation was like that. I was able to talk again. I was able to participate again. I was able to take my place in this ocean of suffering that I was in. Because I could finally turn around and look in here to see that I was in real pain. The second experience comes a couple weeks later. I noticed on the weekly schedule that on certain days in the evenings, there were supposed to be guided meditations. There's even a sign-up sheet that went around every day. Sign up for guided meditation. Only come the evening, there was no guided meditation. So I finally asked a staff person about it. I said, why is this through guided meditation? Where's this happening? Is it in a tree somewhere? And they say, oh, we're not offering that because people would sign up and then they wouldn't show up. So the person leading it just sat in a room by themselves for an hour. We just, we're not gonna do that anymore. Okay, well, can I do it? 
have some experience with this meditation thing. If you want to, you're probably gonna just end up sitting in the room by yourself for an hour. Do you not hear that? Are you okay with that? I'm okay with that. Have some experience doing that. But I'm gonna need some help from you, staff person. I need you to put together a handout for me based on what I'd seen so far, what was needed was a lot of loving kindness. Loving kindness for ourselves, those of us that were in treatment. Handout was simple, just your standard loving kindness phrases. May I be kind, may I be joyful, may I be peaceful, may I be loved, may I be happy. And the loving kindness sutra, which we read this morning, appeared at the bottom. I've had it memorized for years. It was not hard to reproduce. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer loving kindness guided meditations. And I did. Announcement was made. Michael's going to do this. The expectation was that nobody showed up. A dozen people showed up every night that I offered it give an introductory spiel, we'd do the meditation, there'd be an opportunity for people to share and ask questions, and we would close by reading the Loving Kindness Sutra together. And one evening, about three weeks into treatment, this young man, this kid, really, named Bryce, shows up. Kid is apt, he's 19, just looks young. And as I'm leading the meditation, I notice that he's crying. It wasn't unusual for people to have tears run down, tears run down their cheeks, but he's like really crying. It's okay, cry, let it out. And we get to the opportunity for people to share and ask questions. And Bryce puts his hands in Gosho and bows forward and he says, thank you for offering this. He's struggling to talk because he's still crying. It's the first time in my life that I've said, I love myself. First time in 19 years. And outwardly I'm composed, but inwardly I'm on the floor. Smile, thank him for being there. Other people say some things and we go on to read the Loving Kindness Sutra together. When I hear the phrase, doing something with all one's might, with everything that one can muster, 
I tend to think of an athlete. It's like the final play of the game and they're exhausted and they're going to give it all they got on this final play to try and win it. And if you'd have told me that someone could read a sutra with all their might, with everything they could muster, I would have wondered had you understood the phrase. But as we read it together, I look over and there's Bryce and he's doing it with all his might. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety, all living beings, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none in high, middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far. Those born and to be born. May all things be happy, all beings be happy. With everything he's got, he's gonna recite that sutra. Over the past year, I've heard the question raised as to whether or not we're really doing anything about the problems of the world when we come here. We fold our legs into pretzels. We sit facing the wall. We're really helping change the world. Yeah, we are. What we do when we come here is hold space and we share the teachings just as I did that evening. I held space. I shared the teachings and the causes and conditions were right for a transformation to take place in that young man. And he could say that he loved himself. And the transformation that took place in him caused a transformation in me. There's a couple different ways I have of explaining that transformation that can come when you just hold space and share the teachings. We can call it the emergence of bodhicitta. It's a Sanskrit word that means noble or awakened heart. Pema Chodron writes that this tenderness for life can emerge, can awaken when we can no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition. The fragility of existence. When you just can't do that any longer, something can break open inside of you. Dogen Zenji, the founder of our Soto Zen lineage, puts it another way in a chapter called Inmo or Thusness from the Shobogenzo. Dogen writes, because you are a person of thusness, you arouse a boundless aspiration for enlightenment. 
once this aspiration arises, you let go of what you have been playing with. And you come forward to hear what you have never heard and realize what is not yet realized. This is not at all self-doing. Know that it is so because you are a person of thusness. And still one more perspective, this time from our particular lineage founder, Kobanchino Roshi. Coben writes that bodhicitta, this drive to seek enlightenment is like a fire that once lit, you cannot stop. It's a fire or a candle, if you will, that is lit when we start accepting ourselves. is what we do in our sitting practice. This is shikantaza. Coming back to actually who and where we are. And this can be very painful. Don't need to tell you that. All of you know that. Coben continues that self-acceptance is the hardest thing to do. If we cannot accept ourselves, we are living in ignorance, the darkest night. We may still be awake, but we don't know where we are and we cannot see. The mind has no light. This is what practice is. Practice is that flame, that candle in our very darkest room. And once it's lit, the only question that remains is, what are you going to do with your life now? What now? During my last few days in treatment, the counselor I've been working with asked me to write a letter to myself that would be sent some point in the future. As I bring this talk to a close, I'd like to share that letter with you. Showed up a couple of weeks ago. As I started preparing for this talk. Coincidence? I think not. So this is what I wrote. Dear Michael, it's 
tempting to ask how you're doing, but I'd rather tell you how I hope you're doing. As I write this, it's March 17th of 2022. As you're reading it, it's September, now October, 2022. I hope that you've left academia, that you're no longer teaching. Yes, you are a great teacher, but this need not happen only in a classroom on a college campus. You often say that Dharma gates are boundless. So are the opportunities for you to be of service to others. So let that life go. Give yourself the chance to pursue something that you're in fact passionate about, please. Here's another hope that your vow, the sincere and honest intention to live by the Buddha's example and toward enlightenment is in place. If nothing else, the month here should confirm that that, the bodhisattva path, is where your passion lies. Whatever flame there was for the academic life has since fizzled. So what have you done with this insight? But most of all, Taishan, for that is who you are. I hope that you've continued to take refuge, flying back to your true nature and strive every day in the direction of the great job you've been given. Be well. Good luck. Signed, Taishin, March 21st, 2022. Thanks for listening.